Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Welcome again to Bridge. Last Sunday, we had an incredible Resurrection Sunday celebration. Uh, At our four o'clock, it was literally standing room only. And just just a a marvelous opportunity for us to celebrate together uh, the resurrection of our Lord. And uh, we took a bit of a detour from our sermon series, but we're coming back to this series on identity that we've gone through over the last few weeks, looking specifically through the book of Ephesians and just going chapter by chapter. And today we are arriving where we left off at Ephesians chapter 4, the second half of Ephesians in verse 17. And the, 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 the idea that we're going to be talking about, the theme, is that a new identity, an extreme makeover. An extreme makeover. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I kind of like somebody like watching like makeover shows. Like you ever, you remember, you remember that show, What Not to Wear? You know what I mean? That was kind of a fun show because, like, you saw, like, people that just had, like, jacked up fashion sense and the two experts would come in. Now you got Queer Eye on Netflix and other shows. And, and, and the thing that they have in common is that there's this, these blind spots. There's this sense. And oftentimes the people think, like, what? What's wrong? I don't know why my friends put me on the show. <laughs> and the experts are like, nah, that ain't it. <laughs> like, this stuff is kind of jacked up. Well, I actually experienced a reverse extreme makeover a few years ago. Uh, yeah, y'all know about that one of those. Let me explain it to you. Uh, we were living in Indiana at the time, and uh, at our church, we heard from a, a person. His name is uh, Maurice. He graduated from uh, Xavier um, in Ohio, and um, he was a homeless advocate. In fact... He was so committed to this cause that he actually sold his house and all of his possessions and became homeless so that he could understand and best represent the needs and the issues of homeless people. It was mind-blowing. So then as he was sharing with us, he said, and by the way, because this is a, a key way for you to be able to know what it's like, I am inviting you to be a part of a homeless experience for a weekend where you will be with me and for a weekend, Friday night, Saturday night, be homeless. Well, I, I said, okay, I'm, rather, I'm willing to try this, you know, check this out with so some, some of our other members from our church. We decided to do this. So literally we drive into the heart of downtown Indianapolis on a Friday you know, but, but before we got there, he had some clear instructions and rules for us about what not to wear. He said, uh, take off your jewelry, no rings, no watches, nothing that would be of value. He said, wear things that you would be comfortable with getting really dirty and, and you know, discarding. So I'm like, okay, cool. So, you know, like some sweats and some, a T-shirt or whatever. So park the car and roll with Maurice, and we, our first stop is dinner. 
which is at a place where they're just like a soup kitchen giving out food. And as far as everyone knows that are there, the other homeless folks as well as those serving us, we were homeless at that time. And I remember that night having to actually go to sleep, right? I got my sleeping bag. And this is an alley in downtown Indianapolis. On one side is a parking garage, and on the other is just a building. And I'm like, oh, snap, it's about to go down. I'm about to really sleep outside tonight. And there were other homeless people just strewn out. And uh, we slept. It was very uncomfortable. You, the weather, one of the things you notice when you sleep outside is, like, the weather changed, like, five times. Like, it went from, like, comfortable to, like, hot to, like, cold to, like, really cold. To... But we get up the next day, and it was time to brush our teeth. So I go to, uh, like, <laughs> I don't have a sink, right? So there was a, a, a local restaurant called Steak and Shake that was around the corner. And I remember walking in. And and you probably have experienced this before where you're like at a restaurant and you see someone that maybe looks homeless and they go straight to the bathroom. You go like, "Mm, are they really, is that for you? Is this bathroom? I think it's for paying customers. You see the signs. But never in my experience, I had been on the other side of that. Walking in and kind of just feeling eyes on you or just being afraid that someone's going to kind of call you out and kick you out. And I was just trying to brush my teeth. And this experience was, you know, I've been to that restaurant many times. But because of somehow, because of what I was wearing, it was a totally different experience. And the reality is that people treat you different based on how you look. The Bible uses the symbol of clothing to teach us about righteousness a lot. Think about it. The first (laughs) encounter we have, Adam and Eve. They're created, and it says that they were naked and unashamed. But then they sin and rebel against God, and what do they do? So fig leaves together to cover themselves, the first outfit. And ever since, from that time on, there's been a journey of how we, what we decide what to wear and what does that symbolize about what we're about. And the problem is that just as sin entered the world and we inherited that issue, we also have inherited a set of hand-me-downs. Anybody here know something about hand-me-downs? Okay. See, see someone, not everybody knows that struggle, so let me break it down for you, right? For those of us that did not come from means or from wealth per se, and especially if we had an older sibling, your first entrance into the world of fashion was simply what they grew out of. That was, that was what you had to wear. That was your new closet. That was your fashion statement. Parents would be like, okay, let's see. Older brother, didn't, you know, that don't work for him. Guess what? This is for you now. And then some families would get creative with it, right? Like even if you didn't have an older sibling, but like the, your cousins were older than you, like the aunties would come together and just like do like a swap meet with each other and be like, oh, yeah, he can have his clothes. And he'd be like, thanks, auntie. Dang. I wanted to like, because you were angling like, yo, mom, I'm out of clothes. Can I get some new? And they're like, nah, you, you, your cousin got you. Hand-me-downs. Well, the interesting thing is we've also inherited hand-me-down beliefs. Beliefs that we, you know, we, we, they just kind of came into the package with us. We didn't necessarily pick them or decide them, but they just are hand-me-downs. Our culture has given us hand-me-downs. We live in a time and in a city that people refer to as a secular age. In Western civilizations, in Europe, in in, uh, the United States, 
In other places, it's, it's referred to oftentimes as post-Christian, right? Like there was a, a time where the dominant way of thinking or the majority of people were, you know, uh, going to church and, and seeing a biblical understanding of life and reality as the primary one in which to be shaped. But all of that is changing now. And all of a sudden they say it's a post-Christian age because increasingly people are critiquing that way of thinking and as, as in fact saying, you know what, we've, we've evolved, we've grown from that. And one of the most powerful things about the secular worldview or the secular system of belief is that it actually pretends to not be a system of belief at all, just the way things are. Like someone was in a religious stupor and then they woke up and all of a sudden they got clear and it's just like, oh, science, yeah, this is, can explain not only how to do things, but why we should do them. Under this guise of objectivity, we can easily find ourselves believing in the many tenets of this faith. One of the tenets is a extreme skepticism of that which we cannot see, a belief that the material world is all that exists. But that's not even the main one. And the one that is really hitting us home. There's something called expressive individualism. Expressive individualism is the idea that only within yourself, not in the context of any other relationships, can your true identity be found. It's this idea that somehow by just simply looking within and rejecting any external pressures or ideas or concepts that might shape who what I'm supposed to be, shutting those things out, and only by discerning from within can I find my true sense of self and purpose, living my own truth. We're, we're surrounded by this idea, and, and it's, it's a challenge because it's completely contrast to another set of beliefs that we're going to talk about in a second, but hear me out. I'm not saying that there's not value to the idea of being thoughtful and introspective about the things that are going on inside of you. No, God has made us and has given us emotions and feelings and thoughts and all of those things. The problem is when we assign ultimate value about what I, who I am, what I'm supposed to do in life based on my internal compass of desires. Let me put it this way. The key question that we have to ask ourselves is, is your identity found from looking within or looking above? Is the core most important things about me simply derived just as an internal way of processing my own sense of emotions, desires, and feelings, or is it based on an authority higher than myself? And it kind of reminds me of that process that many of us go through, I'll admit to it my, myself, that when you get some type of complex new uh, electronic product or a new phone, for, for example, and you initially, it's like, yo, it's charged, I'm just going to use it and just do what I can. But there comes a point where all of that breaks down, right? Where like all of what you want to maximize and fully get out of that particular product, you can't because you haven't read the owner's manual. You see, the person who created the device actually knew better how to work the device than you, and so they created a book that would help you be able to maximize that product. And that's what God has given us in his word. But I have to decide, is the core senses of who I am determined from within or from above? Now, while this kind of post-Christian challenge 
to us is kind of new in the last 30, 40 years in particular. It's not a really new challenge at all. In fact, in the book of Ephesus, uh, Paul is dealing with a pre-Christian culture in which many of the same assumptions existed about how to do life. (laughs) Now, Paul calls on these Christians in Ephesus to look seriously about how the way they live ought to be determined and influenced by the God that they say they serve. Now, I want you to hear me. This is not just a a, a legalistic, kind of moralistic set of just code of conduct, but it's actually tied directly to who Jesus is and what it means for them to walk in his way. So with that context, we're going to dive in right to uh, the 17th verse, and, and Paul just jumps into the gate. He says, therefore, right, in light of all the things that I've just written in the first th- uh, three chapters and the first half of F- Ephesians of chapter 4, he says, therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer live as the Gentiles live. In the futility of their thoughts, they are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. I mean, this is pretty harsh talk, right? You look at that and you, we can kind of bristle, go, dang, Paul, is it really that deep? But it's a real hard look at society and look at the connection that he's drawing. He's saying, hey, you should not live as they live because your thoughts ought to have been transformed by God's thoughts. He said the problem, the reason why they live a certain way is because of the futility of the way that they think. So what we think, what we believe has an immediate implication in what we do. But that's not the only part. He goes on to explain even further because of the ignorance that is in them and the hardness of their hearts. You see, he's targeting two different areas, right? First, he's saying, okay, you got to think differently. You got to think clearly about how to live. But then also, sometimes the issue isn't, I don't know better. Sometimes the issue is, I don't want to know better because I want to do what I want to do. And what happens with that is there can be a hardening of heart where when I continue to go down a path of resistance to what God has said, my heart continues to harden. Now, this was immediately important in the context of Ephesus because this city was actually home to the temple of Artemis. Now, the temple of Artemis was actually considered one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. That means that people from all over the world would gather and come together in the city of Ephesus to experience this temple, but not just look at its external uh, beauty, which was actually was the tallest and biggest building in the world at that time, which was enough to get tourists. But it was deeper than that because it's the temple of Artemis. Well, who is Artemis? Artemis was a goddess that was worshipped in that building. And not just any goddess. She was a goddess of fertility. How does one worship a goddess of fertility? Well, their idea was to hire prostitutes. And actually, through either capturing people or some women who went willingly, actually have sex and pay people for money to actually have worship. 
So this is what the city was known for. In addition to this aspect of witchcraft and the occult that was on and popping on a regular basis. So Paul is talking to a group of people who have directly experienced this and say, hey, there is another way that you are called to live. But here's the key point. Even though we don't live in Ephesus, we still live in a culture that's driven by sex and lust. And we're still living in a culture that's driven by, yo, you just do you. And here's the thing. Broken beliefs create broken behavior. The futility of my thinking about what is best for me and what causes me to make certain decisions immediately impacts my choices and my standards about what I even believe. And see, and I don't just know this from like, you know, I'll be in the outside looking in. I experienced this myself. See, I didn't grow up in a Christian context at all in the church or anything like that. I didn't step foot in the church until I was 17. And what happened and what caused me to start looking and asking different questions is I had genuinely believed, you know what, I'm a good person. I don't need this crutch of faith or religion. I don't need any of that. I'm just going to be a moral person without that and do my thing. And what happens when you don't even meet your own standards? You ever experienced that where like you, you have like just goals or standards or ways that you think you ought to live and how you ought to treat people and you just fall short of those, like let alone like biblical ones, right? Well, that happened to me. And I had to be face to face and confront the fact that, oh, wait, my goodness is not enough to even apply to my own standards of living. So how could I even think or pretend that they're somehow good enough for God? But Paul reminds us and reminded them that we have a better story. In the next verse, he says, but that is not how you came to know Christ. He said, you didn't come to know Christ by just living out every sensual or hungry desire that you have and just going in that way. Like that, that wasn't your story. He goes on to say, you were raised better than that. That's what my mom used to say. You know better. Now, how could Paul be so confident that they came to know Christ differently than that? Well, because he was there. In Acts chapter 19, it actually tells us the story of Paul's encounter in Ephesus when he first went there. And it's a really dramatic read. I mean, you, he gets there, and as was his custom, he begins preaching in the synagogues to the Jew, his fellow Jews and say, hey, Jesus is your Messiah. Some people believe, some people don't. They kick him out of that. So then he goes to uh, the uh, lecture hall of Tyrannus. That was where the, the Greek philosophers would talk about different ideas. And then he went in there and went toe-to-toe with philosophers. Some people believe, some people didn't kick him out of there. So then he's just going through the town. Now, at this point, He's starting to heal people. People are, he's healing people in the name of Jesus as he's preaching, like physically healing people. And it's gathering this crowd and and all of these things are happening. And, and, And so it gets to the point, if you look at verse 17, where it says, when, they be, when this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, this is in Acts chapter 19, both Jews and Greeks, they became afraid. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. Oh, yeah. Paul went through Ephesus and people were like, yo, they recognized what was happening because the power that was emanating and this power that he was saying was coming in Jesus's name. And as a result of that, the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. 
But look at what it goes on and let's see what the reaction is to those who decided to believe. In the next verse, it says, And many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices, while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. Hold up for a second. It's saying that those who became believers, this is immediately what they did. Paul is preaching, you know, to reject idols, that there's only one true God, that Jesus Christ has died for their sins and he's risen again and to believe in him and have a new life. And it says their immediate reaction is they disclose their practice. Like, yo, yeah, uh, I'm an idolater. Yeah, I, that magic stuff, like, that's me. I, I, I dabble in the occult. I try to conjure spirits. Yeah, yup, I do those things, Paul. I was up at that temple of Artemis yesterday. He said they disclose, they confess. Look up what else will happen. But it's not just confession, it's repentance. It says, and many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. This is, repentance is a turning away from. It's saying, I was going this way, and now I'm turning, going the complete opposite, different way. And they did this in front of all of their friends, in front of all of their family, who were still in practicing these things. And they didn't just sell them on eBay. It says they burned them in front of everyone. And just in case we didn't get a grasp of how massive of a transformation this was, how extreme of a makeover it was, it clarifies. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. Let me do some math for you. One piece of the silver, it was called a drachma, was, was one day's wages. So let's just go to the lowball end of it in today. Minimum wage, New York City, $15 an hour. So that would be about $120 a day times 50,000 pieces, $6 million worth of material that they just set on fire because of their faith in Christ. It was a dramatic transformation. It was an extreme makeover. And here's the point. To encounter Jesus is to experience an extreme makeover. This is what it looks like. It, it, it looks like us turning away from some things to the point where people are like, yo, you're doing too much. It don't take all that. It's like, but I love Jesus, though. And it got so bad that if you go and read the rest of the passage, you can check it out later, that the people who were creating the idols for people to worship, like the trinkets, like the people who were doing the, basically the merch, they got so upset at Paul that they started a riot in the city to try to kill him because he was cutting into their percentages. Okay, side note, not everybody gets excited when you start to follow Jesus. <laughs> not everybody gets excited. Some people lose some things because God isn't the only one that has a plan for your life. Oh, yeah. There's some people in those contexts that has a plan for your life, too. And when you start going in this direction, they're like, oh, that's cutting into me. And, and, and they get upset about it and want to start making some noise. But look at it. Paul next explains how did this work? How do, how do we do this? How, how does this extreme makeover happen? And look at what he says. He says, to take off the former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. <laughs> Here, you know, it's like this, right? So basically what Paul is saying is, um, there's one type of outfit that you got on already. This is the hand-me-downs that you were uh, just created with. Yeah. 
you know, and, and our culture tells us, yo, like, rock it, because that's like, that, do what you do. So, like, lying, <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, just flex your thing, because that's what you do. Stealing, you know what I mean? Five-finger discount, hey, that's me. That's my identity, so that's what I'm going to be in. Lust, come on now. You know I'm a player? <laughs> I do my thing. That's who I am. Pride. And just in case you missed it, boom. Anger. That's my style. And the idea is as long as I rock it faithfully, as long as I rock it with conviction, then that's all right. You do you. So Paul says, no, 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 that's, that's not the way that you came to know Christ. In fact, he says, to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desire, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one character created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the spirit. Do you see he's saying that, look, this isn't just about being a good, you know, little Christian girl or boy. No, no. He's saying that the one that you are identified with, the one, like, this is who he is in God's likeness and righteousness. And now since I have been remade in God's image, now I'm supposed to look different. Now I'm supposed to stunt different. Now I'm supposed to flex different. And then he goes on to explain how. But here's the basic point is we got a new dress code. We got a new dress code. I went to, I mean, pretty much school from kindergarten to 12, I had a dress code. Uniforms, anybody school uniforms in the house? Some of us, yes? Now, think about uniforms is you are immediately identifiable about what you're supposed to be doing, right? Like, you can't fake and act like you're not a student when you got a uniform on. Like, that's kind of the point. You go to a courthouse. You see somebody, a woman with a black robe on. What do you know about who that is? The judge, based on a uniform. If you go to a basketball game and you see these guys with red, I mean black and white stripes and black pants, what, do you, what are they? Referees, because of the uniform. What are you wearing? You know, it's interesting, a few years ago, the NBA instituted a dress code policy and this was very controversial. I was one of those, because I was an Allen Iverson fan, and I liked the way my man did his thing. I was like, y'all, oppressing them. Let them be whatever they want to be. That's not, you know, that's not, this, is, this is whack. <laughs> I was mad. And it's funny because they recently, like, started to do a retrospective, because fashion has become such a big deal in the NBA, and started to look back at that time period. And it's amazing to see the transformation of people who before the dress code and after the dress code. One of my favorite was Paul Pierce. Paul Pierce looks like before the dress code, like he's selling bootleg CDs outside of a club. <laughs> like, yo, you want that new end game? I got it, it's already here. And the next joint, after the dress code, he looks like he owns the club. <laughs> And, and what 
happened was that the, the transformation of a dress code, the very people who were opposed to it adamantly before, once they got into it, all of a sudden they see themselves as fashion icons and entrepreneurs and start actually getting into businesses and getting deals. Now you see an express ad and you see nothing but basketball players in suits balling because the new identity reflected in a new look. Our dress code reflects our new collective identity in Christ. The the choices that we decide to make, like what we decide to put on, reflects our identity, or it ought to. So what are we wearing? Have you put on your new dress code? You see, our new identity calls for an extreme makeover. And God is saying, you know... I'm supposed to love Jesus now, so these, this stuff, this ain't supposed to characterize me anymore. And he's like, nah, take that off. That's, that's a bad look. That's a bad look. Don't, don't rock that. I got something else for you to wear. Yes, sir. Oh, snap. He said, try this on. Just try it on. Just, just you know, you might, you know, just see. Just see. Hold on. Hold on. Oh, okay. How does that... Yeah, I like that fit better. It feels more comfortable. Does it work? I think it works. Yeah. And he's like, yo, I got something else for you to wear. Notice he doesn't just tell you to take something off and leave it. He's like, I got something else for you to put on. In the next few verses, Paul tells us exactly what that looks like. Check it out. In verse 25, he says, therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Oh, you see the extreme makeover? He's saying, he said, look, you used to be characterized as somebody who um, embellishes on stories. You know, you kind of like exaggerate and stretch the tooth. All these are just euphemisms. You lie. You know, that's what you do. That's, you know. He was like, instead of being characterized and identified by that, here's what. Try this on. Speak the truth, each one to his neighbor. And here's, don't miss that this is not just a vertical exchange. It's also horizontal in how we deal with each other. Look at the benefit. Because we are members of one another. See, if I'm spending all my time trying to flatter people because I want them to like me, then I'm not actually speaking truth to them. You know, earlier before the service, Janelle saw that I had, you know, something on my face or whatever. She gave me some tissue. Like, yeah, because I care about you, I want you, I'm going to tell you the truth that something's out of place. That's what we need. No, I'm glad for that, right? I would rather have that than flattery. Like, oh, you know, look, everything's cool. No, yeah, you're fine. That's why we need each other to do that. Because we are members of one another. Here's what I'm trying to say. The ordinary means that God uses to grow us up is each other. I'll keep going. Verse, next verse. It says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Oh, man. Woo. We're my hotheads in the house. There's some good news for y'all. Because the first part of this says be angry and do not sin, which means it's possible to be angry and not sin. Like anger in and of itself is not necessarily bad. We just saw yesterday another tragedy, another, you know, murders in synagogues. Before that, at Sri Lanka, churches, Hundreds of people dying. Before that, bombings in mosques and bombings in black churches in the south. And we see these things. and we, There ought to be a sense of righteous indignation that comes from us. 
Here's the key though, be angry and do not sin. There was talk of retaliations in those places. Like, no, 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 no. That's not how we're supposed to live. But then look at the second part. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And don't give the devil an opportunity. There is a relationship between the amount of time that we allow to pass. He's like, don't let days and weeks and months and years fester while I still hold on to that sense of resentment and angerness and bitterness. And here's why. Because it will give the devil an opportunity. The devil's name in Greek actually literally means accuser. So what happens is he accuses people in our ear. He accuses us to each other. And if I keep that resentment and anger and I don't deal with it immediately, if I don't go to that person soon, then it just creates more and more opportunity for lies to come in. This just happened to me this week. I had uh, on Monday, I had texted, uh, well, actually on Friday, I had texted a friend and said, hey, I'm doing this event. I'd like for you to help. Would you be interested? They were like, let me get back to you after, you know, Sunday. So Monday, they were like, uh, we have some questions about the event. I'm not sure if we're going to be able to do it. I'm not sure if it's like the right thing for us. Not sure if it's going in the right direction. So then I send like one of them long text messages, like the one that covers the whole screen, like with like context and insight. This, oh, let me, I understand that. I didn't give you enough information. Let me explain to you some more. Now, initially, the first exchange happened within five minutes of each other. After I sent the long joint, when you like put yourself out there and explain yourself, five minutes turned into 10 minutes, turned into one hour, turned into six, turned into Tuesday. I was like, and then y'all starting to feel a certain way, like, oh, okay, I see, it's like that now, huh? Oh, we ain't going to respond. I don't even see no bubbles. Okay, that's cool. <laughs> turned into Wednesday, turned into Thursday. Now I'm like, you know what? I thought they was, we was cool, but we really not. You know, that's all right. I just need to, you know, I know where our relationship really is now. On Friday, I got a text message back. Hey, so sorry I didn't respond. Like, we were at this conference. I was doing some things and just kind of got caught up. But got your message. Thank you so much for that clarification. It really helped. Love to work with you in the future. And I was like, oh. I had let accusations build up from silence. How many times have we put a whole bunch of meaning into silence? He says, don't give the devil an opportunity because he's looking for an opportunity to accuse. Then it goes on. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. Oh, this is a deep. Now, warning, this one might feel a little tight. Because we look at stealing, we go, yo, I'm not like grabbing purses from somebody and running. But... There are little micro decisions that happen every day that we have to make decisions about. When we're at work, when we're at somebody's house, and, you know, it's like, well, I don't know. They got so many, they won't necessarily miss this. I remember being, you know, like 2 a.m. at a subway station. That emergency exit door is cracked open. I mean, you know, what's going to hurt? Shoot, they 10 minutes late anyway. They doing all this construction in Brooklyn. They owe me. <laughs> Tempting. But somebody challenged me with something that has always changed my perspective. They said, how much is your integrity worth? Is your integrity worth $2.75? 
Is your integrity worth not saying something when your cousin has this like mysterious free cable hookup? <laughs> How much is it worth? It's like, yo, Game of Thrones though, I need this. It says, don't steal, but look, it says he was to do honest work with his own hands. And you know what changes your perspective on stuff like that? When you have friends that are artists and then you see stuff getting bootlegged and you go, yo, that's actually not funny because people will create something. They spend all this time, money, energy in the studio, and then people are just ripping it off for free. And so when you see, and so that's what he's saying. He says, look, instead do honest work with your hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. There are actual consequences to when we steal and take advantage of situations. It's not a victimless crime. He goes on. Let me move on because it just got tight in here. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. This mouth thing, James in chapter 2 says that the tongue is like a raging fire. Who can control it? He says, let no foul. And now the interesting thing is that the primary emphasis of foul language here is not primarily focusing on profanity. It's actually talking about slander and gossip. It's talking about corrupt speech that tends to tear people down. And look at what he contrasts that with. Instead of tearing people down, it says, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those that hear. That's amazing. We saw in Ephesians 2, verse 8, it says that for grace you are saved. It's by grace you are saved through faith, not of your own. It's a gift of God. And he's using that same word, grace, to say not only is it something that God gives us, but it's something we can give each other by building each other up. He says, give grace to those in need. And then he kind of wraps it all up by saying, and don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Little theological side note, the Holy Spirit is not an it. He is not a force. He is a person. He's a third person of the Trinity and actually can be grieved. That word there means actually distressed by when we decide to not live according to this extreme makeover. Paul puts it this way in Corinthians. He said, why would you sin sexually with your bodies? Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you? So that means when I lay down with someone that I'm not supposed to, I'm putting Jesus Christ in that situation and the Holy Spirit in that situation too. And he said, God forbid. He says, don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. Because you were sealed by him, by the spirit. He's like, look, you are already bought with the price that already, that purchase price has already been delivered for the day of redemption. Here's again, he doesn't just say, don't do this. But then he says, do this. Focus on the day of redemption. The day of redemption is that moment in time where we're, I'm standing in between right now between when Jesus ascended in heaven when he returns. And he was like, that day of redemption is the day when all of the hard work, all of the striving to wear this new extreme makeover becomes reality. You ever been anticipating a day for years? Many of you, that day of anticipation finally got fruition on Friday or Saturday after 11 years of the Marvel Cinematic Universe for some of you. But there was an even bigger day in my life. 
July 7th, 2001. It was a day I had been looking forward to for years. I remember my friends were there and, you know what I mean, we were dressed in our finest attire and it was like we had our picture with my crew, right? You know what I mean? Like it was like, yo, it's about to go down. My man James got his hand on my shoulder, you know what I mean, looking like Young Buck then. We was Young Bucks then. But nothing that day compared to the vision what I saw coming down the aisle. Oh, yes. Oh, man. The radiance and the beauty of Tamika coming down. And I'm like, yo, I get to spend the rest of my life with this woman. This was the day that we had been waiting for of spending our lives together. And yo, I am excited to say that this July, it's going to be 18 years of that day. Yes. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Look, look, look Look at what Revelation says in 19. It says, let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory because the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. It was like, oh, there's the, the vision, the image that, that God gives us at the end of this thing when we see Jesus face to face is like that same anticipation and that same excitement of a wedding day. And look at how he describes what the bride is wearing. He says, she was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. He said, oh, the, the, the attire is not just going to be, okay, where'd you get that dress? Who are you wearing today? No, 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 no. What, what you're wearing is righteousness. Every decision that was made that cost you extra money because you decided to not cut corners and get the hustle. Every decision that you made to have that hard conversation, to to not let the sun go down on your anger. Every hard truth that you spoke that because you did it for the sake of love for somebody else. All of these things are the acts that adorn the linen that we will see when when Christ sees us face to face. It's not loss. (laughs) Even when you decided to swipe at that train station when nobody else was there. He sees that too. Oh yeah, the righteous acts of the saints. That's the culmination. And he's like, it's so worth it. You got to always have that focus that what we're doing this for and the struggle doesn't last forever. But just in case some of us, like I'm sure some of the Ephesians fell short of that calling, of that makeover, he tells them one last thing. And this is what we're wrapping up with. He says, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is what he's saying. Look, we're, even as a community, even as we strive to live up to this extreme makeover, he's like, we're not always, our actions don't look completely pure and white. We're going to hurt each other. We're going to fall short of those goals. You're going to find somebody who's talking about you. You're going to see someone transgress. And he's like, be kind and compassionate to one another. Here's the challenge, forgiving one another. One of the biggest challenges that people experience with community and why people don't want to mess with communities is because you get hurt. And it's true. But the reality is we also hurt others as well. And look at the reasoning that Paul establishes forgiving one another just as God also forgave you in Christ. It wasn't just, oh, that's okay, I forgive you. 
It says that Jesus came and put on the garment of human flesh. That he walked among us for 33 years. And that when they decided to sentence him to death, an innocent man, they stripped him of his clothes. They put a purple robe on him to mock him. It says, hail, king of the Jews. And then when it was time to crucify him, they took all that off of him. And that garment of flesh that he wore was ripped and torn, nailed to a cross. Suffered for hours. And on that cross said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And that was a call not just to the people who were nailing them there, but to every person whose sins were being nailed there. Us. He finally breathed his last. And they put him in grave clothes. And they buried him in the tomb. And the thing that was most shocking three days later is that when Peter and John, who had heard the women talking about this resurrection, they go to the tomb and they saw the grave clothes were still there. Oh, Jesus experienced an extreme makeover, you see. See, that old body of that flesh that was sacrificed for us was now raised to new life. And it said when they saw him next, that his garments were shining like lightning. And the Bible tells us that he's the first fruit of that which is to come, which means that we also are going to be transformed and changed and made in his likeness. But that was the price of our forgiveness. So he says, forgive one another. Christian living is the putting off of the self-centered identity and putting on of this Christ-centered identity. He's like, now join, you're, you're with me now. You, you're, you're a part of me now. So now you wear what I wear. You, you do what I do. Remember what he said. He said, let men see your good works and glorify your father who was in heaven. People can't see our faith, but they can see what we decide to put on as a result of that faith. So the question is, for all of us, what do we need to put off? What are those hand-me-downs that we need to get rid of? Those old ways that we've adopted? And what do we need to put on? Because whenever we take something off, we put something on that corresponds. Whenever there's something that takes away from fellowship and takes away from our sense of righteousness with God, there's something that we put on. What do we need to put on? What do you need to put on? Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for the extreme makeover that you did. First, the reverse one of leaving glory and coming down into a broken and fallen world. The second one of experiencing death in the grave and being resurrected again for our sake. Thank you for giving us the opportunity of an extreme makeover as well. Would you help us to remember what we need to put off and what we need to put on? In Jesus' name, amen.
this is the time when we get to respond to the message. You know, the interesting thing is that Jesus on the night he was betrayed, it said he, he, he broke bread and he took the cup and he said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. Do this. And every time you do this, as often as you do this, remember me. It's the opportunity that we get as a community to remember the forgiveness that God has extended to us and also to remember the, extent, the forgiveness we need to extend to someone else. So as we think about that question of what we need to put off and put on, there's two opportunities to respond. One is to come forward uh, for communion when the elements get brought here. The other is to pray in the back. There, there's likely some conversations that you need to have with some people to allow the, the sun not to go down on your anger. There's likely some choices that need to be changed to change your wardrobe. And you might need some help with that. And here's the last thing I want us to think about as we think about these changes. We were never made to wear, put on all these things on ourselves. Just like in all of those extreme makeover shows. There are elements that we can't see that somebody else can see for us. To go, hey, you know, that, that's not a good look for you. But this is. Try this on. May we try these things on today. So as the elements come, we'll just ask you to uh, come through the middle aisles uh, and then come out the outer aisles. Would you stand with me together and let us receive this time of communion? So in your own time, you just come forward, take one of the cups, and as you think and reflect and as God gives you time to just, to just listen to his voice, to go ahead and, and consume the bread and, and the cup. Lord, thank you for this time and this opportunity to worship you. Would you be with us as we partake of the elements in Jesus' name? Amen. Would you come forward now? Would you come? We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at BridgeChurchNYC. Our website is BridgeChurchNYC.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you and we hope to see you soon.